the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, on Twitter, at Common Good Talk, plus wherever it is you get your podcasts. If uh, you like, subscribe, and review on the podcast, that does somehow magically help us out. And uh, we are still a new show, so if you hit that little share button there, send to a friend or a stranger. That could be a fun game. Just type a number at random, and uh, <laughs> we'll be really, really appreciative of that. Brian and I will often say one of our favorite things about this show, as much as we enjoy talking just the two of us, is having guests, especially Absolutely. guests in the studio, because, I don't know, there's something about a live interview that's a lot of, just, uh, I think it's a, it's a really interesting way to kind of understand people and their stories and uh, we have in the studio Saul Abema who I just learned how to say your last name correctly <laughs> my yes. apologies just a second ago when I said it horrifically incorrectly um, but I'd love for people just to first off know a bit of who you are and kind of what makes you tick and then we'll kind of get into the weeds a little bit okay uh, my name is Saul Abema um, I was born in South Sudan but I had my theological training in Johannesburg South Africa actually in Soweto and then came to the U.S. in 2005 to study at Northern uh, Seminary. So mm. I love doing ministry. Right now I work as a hospice chaplain. Wow. But mm. I've pastored some churches in South Africa and here. And, uh, and then I work with my uh, foundation, Solabema Foundation in South Sudan. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing in the South Sudan? Because a lot of us have heard stories about the Sudan, but obviously being so far away, I don't know. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that was like to grow up there and kind of some of the things you saw there? Uh, life in South Sudan as a kid, uh, it was fun. You know, we are, <laughs> we are cattle keepers and we are farmers, so we don't get a chance to go to school like here. Hmm. You know, from age 8, 9, 10, you know, yeah. uh, the family sends you out to graze cattle. You know, so that was uh, almost life. So when we did hmm. go to school, maybe it was, you know, we have two seasons the the rainy season and the hot season. Mm. So during the rainy season, there's no school because we studied under the mango tree, you know, makeshift schools. Wow. And then in the hot season, then uh, uh, volunteer parent teachers, uh, you know, would teach us. Wow. But our country was also torn by war. Uh, during the time I was growing up, uh, South Sudan was going through a lot of uh, conflict. Uh, the Sudanese government was uh, mainly attacking the South Sudanese because it mm. was a Christian uh, community. Right. And by then it was one big country and Sudan mm. was an Islamic nation. So in 1974, they introduced the Sharia law where everybody should worship, you know, uh, live within the Sharia law, mm. practice Islamic rules and uh being the Islamic religion. Yeah. Hmm. But South Sudan had tremendous British influence, so most of the people there, uh, a big majority was Christian, and then the rest were animists. They believed in the traditional African religion. Hmm. So in that sense, spiritually, uh, because of the war, the context of living was really tough. Mm -hmm. So the Sudanese government would um, come 
And when they find you worshiping in a church, they would kill all of you. You know, they would no, burn everybody. So there was a lot of uh, religious persecution uh, when I was growing up. Wow. Yeah. Now, is some of that the reason I imagine? So you have a foundation, and you have here in your bio, it says the Alabama Foundation helping the children in South Sudan that have been affected by war. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about the, the foundation specifically? So uh, because of my life experiences and having gone through uh, the experience of war, yeah. uh, South Sudan is uh, highly affected. So most children really don't go to school. Hmm. Uh, most people are displaced from their homes. In fact, I have a statistic on my foundation's website. Can I read that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please do. So this is how uh, the war is affected, and this is why we are doing what we are doing. More than one million children in South Sudan are malnourished. Oh. 300,000 severely so. 60% of people in South Sudan don't know where their next meal is coming from. Wow. Wow. Violence has displaced more than 4 million people. 60% of them children. The ongoing crisis in South Sudan is fueling extremely high rates of infant mortality. 90 of every 1,000 infants born will die. No, 90 wow. out of 1,000. Wow. Only 50% of the population has access to safe water. 10% basic sanitation. Over 60% practice open defecation. Wow. You know, you see, they just go to the bushes yeah, and yeah, creates right. lots of uh, sicknesses. Hmm. Over seventy uh, percent of school-age children are not receiving education. Over seventy percent. Seventy percent. Wow. Around nineteen thousand, nineteen thousand children held by armed groups are serving as fighters, cooks, porters, messengers, and many suffer sexual abuse. Wow. And I was a victim of that. I was kidnapped at the age of 15 to fight as a child soldier with the okay. Sudanese People's Liberation Army. Wow. So coming from that experience and knowing what children go through. And uh, sometimes I, I feel blessed now living yeah. in America. Yeah. So mm. God has blessed me. So mm. I think it's an opportunity to look back and mm. give back and give hope and help the children there. That's why That's uh, we are doing that. So we, we provide food. We provide education, uh, make sure schools, and then we, we teach the parents, hmm. you know, to get the, you know, to be able to teach. Their, uh, we teach the parents to be teachers so mm, they can yeah, teach right. their children from a young age. Yeah. Wow. I'm wondering, back to your story, it says that you kind of miraculous through a series of miracles ended up in South Africa in the year 2000. You, you yes. got, you piqued my interest. So <laughs> talk to us about those series of miracles that landed you in, in Johannesburg. So, um, so in 1989, when I was 12 years old, uh, my family, uh, my village was attacked. And uh, it was a nice evening. Uh, we had just gotten, my brother and I, my brother was 14, I was 12, so we'd just come back home from grazing the cattle. Hmm. So we sat down and mom was preparing dinner. Then all of a sudden we had gunshots and people were screaming and shouting. And then um, my dad said, you know, stay here. You know, let me go outside and see how we can run. Mm. Uh, as he began to get out of the door, the militia was right there. Mm. Wow. And they attacked us. Uh, they tied me and my brother together, wow. and they focused their attention at beating my parents. And they beat them as if that was not enough. Uh, they, they had the machetes and began to chop them into pieces. Oh, my gosh. And then um, as if that was not enough, 
they poured gasoline and lit them on fire. As a 12-year-old and uh, a Christian, you know, seeing this, you know, praying the Lord's Prayer and hoping that God would perform a miracle, nothing happened. Right. So seeing my parents die, um, the part of me died, mm. and my faith uh, died when they died. Mm. So, you know, in, in our home, uh, the roof was made of grass. So as the fire was burning, you know, it was almost about to catch, you know, the whole place to be burned. So my brother and I would have been burned alive. And then the Sudanese People's Liberation Army came and rescued us. You know, that's the first miracle. So then they took us um, from Yei to to Nimule, to northern Uganda. So that was a long walk. And during the walk, some people died along the way. And then in northern Uganda, we were received by United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Mm. And then we were given um, tents to live in. Uh, That was a difficult time. I was going through depression, severe depression and suicidal ideation. Many times I thought of committing suicide. Mm. And sometimes I would sleep and not get out uh, for days. I wanted to die. Mm. And um, We've been joined by Saul Abema of the Saul Abema Foundation. He's been sharing his story. He's going to stick with us for a couple more segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and we have been joined for quite some time with Saul Abema of the Saul Abema Foundation. He's been sharing just a bit of his remarkable story. Uh, miraculously, there were therapists that came and, and wow. you know, provided us therapy. Some British missionaries came and brought soccer. So the soccer ball became an amazing distraction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I learned to play soccer. Uh, but there were many days where I'm thinking, this is the day. Let me just kill myself. Let me just drink to death. Mm. And then it's like out here, uh, my mother said, God will make a way for you. Mm. You know, I had a deep relationship with my mother. So I loved uh, my mother, but I hated God. Mm. So when she would say, God will make a way for you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, follow through with my idea. Wow. So we were there and we were taken through therapy. Um, we were taken through school, you know, just, and then I was learning to play soccer. But then at 15, uh, my, um, my brother and I were kidnapped by the Sudanese People's Liberation Army to go and fight against the government, you know, mm. so... You're taken in the jungle and given AK-47, and you're pumped up on drugs. Right. So um, you're psychologically conditioned to 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 operate as an animal. You mm. know, uh, life was meaningless. Mm. You know, every day I would wonder, what is my life? What is my purpose? What is my destiny? Right. And, and I wouldn't see anything. Wow, my goodness. So went through those periods of suicidal ideation, and then. Um, in 1999, uh, after about five years, you know, my brother came up with an idea, you know, let's escape. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why not? The thing is, yeah, why not? <laughs> the thing is, we had seen so many people when, when you try to escape and they find you, they kill you. Yeah. So the penalty was death, you know, so, and so we, we said, you know, let's take the chance. What is there to lose? You know, the way we are living is there's no life. We're just yeah. going through the emotions of life. Right. So, Apparently, he had told he, had, he was trying to invite other kids to join us as we plan our escape. Then one of the people told the army commander, "You know, watch out for those two brothers." Um, and indeed, as we were running, they began to shoot at us with the AK-47, and my brother was shot dead. Gosh! And um, 
So I went back, and uh, that was tough. I didn't want to leave anymore because everyone was gone, and my brother, who was a source of strength, um, is gone too. Yeah. You know, so then in 2000, uh, a miracle happened. The Sudanese government found out where we were hiding, and they were throwing bombs down, you know. And then I began, then I ran. Now, this is amazing how God works. Even if I did not want anything to do with God, I ran. I had no idea where I was going. Hmm. And I found myself in the border of Uganda and Sudan. Huh. And I met some people there. I'm like, oh, I just ran away. Can you guys help me? And this is another miracle. One guy who lives there said, you know, your rebel group has caused so much chaos in this village. If they find that you are one of them, they're going to kill you. Hmm. So he bought a bus ticket for me, a dollar, <laughs> wow. from there to go to Kampala, which is the capital city of Uganda. When we got in Kampala, I didn't know anybody in Kampala, and um, I didn't know the language. Uh, uh, so I ended up in the streets of Kampala. Um, there were so many street kids uh, sleeping on the pavements there. So I joined them, so I would sleep on the pavements. Hmm. The good thing with Kampala is there was a big tax, uh, tax rank where women would come and cook food for the tradesmen, you know, hmm. in the city. So during breakfast, lunch, or dinner, I would be around there when I was hungry and just wait. Sometimes people eat a little bit and just throw their food hmm. in the garbage can, so I would go pick it up and eat. So I survived like that in the streets of Kampala for about one month. And, and then one day, um, as I was looking for food in the garbage cans, uh, this guy approached me and said, you know, young man, why are you in the streets? You know, why are you eating from the garbage cans? And mm. I told him, you know, uh, the journey that I'd gone through. And he said, you know, I'm a Christian man. Uh, you can come with me. I'm, tra I'm transporting goods from Kampala to Dar es Salaam. Then from Dar es Salaam, uh, might end up in Lusaka, Zambia. Hmm. You know, you transport goods from country to country, and we might end up in South Africa. Hmm. I had nothing to lose. I had no passport, so I said, that's fine. So that is one of the miracles. So we made yeah. a long trip. Yeah. No kidding. Then we ended up in Johannesburg, South Africa. And there he bought me some uh, uh, some clothes, and he gave me some money, and he said, in this country, you're going to survive. Just go find a motel. You'll find so many people from your countries, and you're going to make money and have a living. Hmm. So for the first time in my life, you know, Johans I'm in a world-class city. I'm in yeah. Johannesburg. Right. You know? Wow. Right. <laughs> so as I'm walking, looking for a motel, two criminals come with a gun, and they point the gun at me, and they took everything that I had. <laughs> Wow. Now, I did not know where my friend was because all the streets looked the same. Hmm. I had no idea that streets had names. Hmm. So the miracle, uh, street life in Kampala already prepared me for street life in South Africa. Mm. Wow. So I went back uh, to the streets in South Africa. Luckily, in South Africa, there were so many abandoned buildings where the homeless people would sleep. So I, same, you know, I would go by the marketplaces, you know, pick up food and then sleep on the, in the abandoned buildings. So one day, you see, this is a challenge when you're homeless. Uh, nobody, in most cases, nobody wants to talk to you. Right. So you can go for days without having a meaningful conversation with hmm. anyone. And when people see you coming, you know, they just change, move over to the other side of mm -hmm. the road. Right. So because you... You're unpredictable, so I don't blame them. So, but it was very, uh, the experience, the loneliness and the depression was so severe. Yeah. 
So one day, uh, and this is how God works, as I was walking, there were two guys coming towards me in a deep in conversation, and I'm thinking, okay, it's the same. When I get closer to them, they will move over to right, the other side right. of the road. But this time they kept coming. Hmm. Then I heard them speaking a language from where I was in the refugee camp in northern Uganda. Then wow. I'm like, hey, brothers, hmm. can you help me? And they were shocked that a street kid in South Africa could you know, speak their language. Right, right. And they say, you know, we cannot help you, but there's a pastor that helps people like you. And then uh, they showed me the pastor's office. Uh, pastor John Dungu, he was the pastor of uh, Bethany Baptist Church. Hmm. So he had about 15 refugees living inside the church. No kidding. So, uh, so he, he said, oh, you're welcome. You know, we have a place. Join the other boys who are living at the church. So he drove me to the church. And uh, so at night we moved the chairs and then sleep. And so that's how we were. Wow. But it was also a tough time in South Africa where the South African government was tired of immigrants coming to mm-hmm. So the police were given uh, permission to profile. So the police could stop you and say, you don't look like a South African. Where's mm-hmm. your visa? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so one day as I was just walking outside the church, there's a beautiful park called Berea Park. So I'm walking by the park, and the police stop me. Mm. And where's your visa? I'm like, no, I have no visa, no paperwork. Mm. So I was arrested and taken to a deportation camp, a place called Indela. Mm. And there, uh, and the pastor told me, you know, we are going to pray. Within two weeks, you're going to be out. You know, you know. So he invited the church, and they're praying. Two weeks came, nothing happened. <laughs> My faith died. <laughs> uh, uh, mm. <laughs> So, but God was working, and mm. um, uh, the, uh, you know, I was there for about forty days. You know, no you had kidding. one meal a day. You know, at nine, at three p.m. until the next day at three p.m. That's when you had your meal. Wow! So the Sudanese ambassador came and processed my paperwork. Mm. The thing is, because I was forced to fight against the government, if I was deported back to Sudan, I was going to get killed. Mm. I was going to be put on the firing squad. Mm. And then, miraculously, the lawyers for human rights heard about my story, and they came with some journalists, and they interviewed me. Okay. And then when they published, is it fair to deport this young man back to uh, Sudan, knowing that upon arrival in Khartoum, he's going to get killed? Right. And the public said, no, so I was released. Wow. So and, <laughs> my faith needed that meal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. So I went back to the church. I don't know how to sing. I became one of the choir members. I was singing <laughs> in the choir. I became the youth leader. I became the usher. Everything. No kidding. <laughs> Everything they needed. I did it. Wow. So <laughs> now my faith is revived. I'm, you mm. know, I'm teaching the youth. And then I began to have a series of dreams where I was a minister. I was preaching, but outside the church, not mm. inside. So it happened about four times. Then I told my pastor, you know, I've been having these dreams where I was preaching, but the weirdest thing is it is outside, mm-hmm. not in the church. He said, maybe that is your call to ministry. Then I'm like, okay, now what? And he's like, you know, we are Baptists, so you have to go to school first. So I'm like, okay, how? I don't have any high school degree. You know? yeah, right, right. So he took me to the Baptist Convention College in Soweto. And when they heard my story, they said, you know, your life story is worth a high school degree. Just come to the college mm, wow. and we'll mentor you. That other voice you're hearing is Saul Abema of the Saul Abema Foundation. He's been telling us his remarkable story. And stick around with us here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're joined in the studio with Saul Abema of the Saul Abema Foundation. He's been talking about his unbelievable story. So they took me to the college. Wow. And they mentored me. It was a big chance to get out of the streets. So the library became like my home. So after three years, I graduated top of my class. Oh, wow. And wow. I got a presidential scholarship to come to Northern Seminary in Lombard to do my MDiv. That's amazing. South Africa to Lombard. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's remarkable. Yeah, so, yeah, that's why I came there. I got my MDiv in 2008 and then did my uh, doctorate in ministry and got there in 2015. So those are the miracles. What yeah. a story. Jeez <laughs> First off, thank you so much for sharing all yes. that. I can see on your face, too, there are parts of that story that are still very real, like very tough to talk about. Yeah. And even though you're on the other side of them, it, it really does mean a lot to us that you would take the time to, yeah. to share. Because I think Christianity needs that. So often it feels like what, what's depicted is the shiny and the wonderful, and we like gloss over like the hard and the difficult, mm-hmm. right? Which is yes. a lot of what your foundation is about. We, we yes. have just about four minutes left. I want to yes. make sure to ask this question, though. Yeah. How can people support you in the work that you're doing, or how yeah. can they come alongside you? If someone's listening and they're thinking, I've, I've never heard a story like this in my life, how can people reach you or, or donate or help, or are there opportunities for people even to do that? Yes, you can uh, go to solabemafoundation.org, and uh, you can donate on, uh, online there. Okay. And you can reach me on there and you can see some of the things we're doing and what we plan to do to help the children. Yeah. So for me, I was lucky. But so many of the kids in South Sudan are committing suicide because of right. the despair and the hopelessness mm. becomes so strong that you see no way out. Oh. And in that sense, uh, you feel totally hopeless. Right. And when somebody is totally hopeless, they have nothing to lose and they think suicide is the best way out of all this. Wow. And I've been through my period of suicidal ideation, so we're trying to provide therapy for some of these children who've lost their you know, parents from a young age. Mm. It is hard uh, for those kids uh, to, 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 to discover life again, you know, mm. to discover a new normal. Yeah, you right, know, uh, right. It really, it's really, really hard. You need a lot of support hmm. to, f- you know, to, form, uh, to formulate a new normal yeah. in a world where your parents and your relatives are not in it, but you are right. in it. So, yeah, so that's, that's what we're doing. And anybody can partner with us uh, to bring hope. And that, that's solabama.org, right? That's S-A-U-L-Solabamafoundation.org. Yes. Got it. And Abema yeah. is E-B-E-M-A, just yes. so that everyone, and we'll have it on the Facebook page yep. and all that. Yep. Yes. Uh, it's interesting, again, with a couple minutes we have left, uh, you're now a hospice chaplain in Bolingbroke. Yes. And that doesn't sound like a random thing. That sounds like your whole life has kind of, like, it's got to all kind of be knit together. Uh, what is it like now, with all you've been through, to be a hospice chaplain? My God, it is a blessing. I feel like my entire life has prepared me, you know, uh, to become a hospice chaplain, to work with people who are dying. Yeah. You know, as you know very well in this culture, people are scared of death and dying. That's right. But I've had multiple losses in my life. So in a mm. sense, like you said, I'm still wounded. Mm. I'm still hurt. You never mm. heal from, uh, from wounds of sudden death. But like Henry Nguyen said, you become... Uh, I'm a wounded healer. A wounded you know, healer, in that right. Sense. That's right. So I enter into people's pain and walk mm. alongside them. And he said, it's been an amazing journey. And yeah. I feel at home there That's so where good. there's no mask. You know, right. that, that is one of my issues with the church. When mm-hmm. people come to church on Sunday, there's a lot of mass. Mm-hmm. But when you're working with the dying and you enter into the house, there's nothing to hide. Right. There's death and dying. That's so so good. Wow. when there's pain, that is where I feel at home. 
That's so working good. Working with people in pain and providing hope. Okay, so for the last yeah. minute that we have left, you've seen m- more than maybe any of us will ever actually see ourselves. What what encouragement or challenge would you give to the American church in particular, based on what you've experienced and what you've seen now having been here for a while? Mm. Either a word of hope or a word of, of challenge, what, what would you give? You see, my, my issue with the American church uh, is, yes, people believe in God, you know, uh, but where I come from, you know, people depend on God. Mm. You know, it's easy to believe in God when you have the checks coming, life right. is good, a lot right. of credit cards. Yeah, right. <laughs> but what happens when you don't have the money coming yep. in? No credit card. So people actually depend on God and hmm. we see lots of miracles. Hmm. So take that belief to total dependence on God. Mm-hmm. And then you see God work tremendously, you know, in your faith journey, in your spiritual journey. Man, that's a good word. What a way to end this. Saul, thank you so much thank for taking you. the time to join us again. That is Saul Abema, the president of his foundation, the Saul Abema Foundation. I cannot encourage you enough. Go to SaulAbemaFoundation.org to learn more, to partner, to give. I'm so grateful for people like you and the work that you do in the world, brother. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>